Hello and welcome back to another episode of the It's a Crime O'Clock Somewhere podcast. This is episode 6. In today's case, I will be talking about the Daniel Viejas false conviction case. I watched the documentary A Fatal Confession Keith Morrison Investigates on Discovery+. Plus. So this documentary is my biggest source and where all the audio clips you'll hear are from. was only 16 years old when he confessed to killing two teenagers in a 1993 drive-by shooting in Northeast El Paso. Daniel Viejas was a 16-year-old kid living in El Paso, Texas in 1993 when the crime he was accused of occurred. Daniel was known to be a jokester and was always a happy kid who maybe didn't make the best decisions when it came to friends. It's really important to remember that two boys lost their lives. This documentary focuses more on Daniel Viejas' trial and story, but I do want to talk about what happened in 1993 as well. On April 10th, 1993, Armando Mondo Lazo, who was 17, and Bobby England, who was 19, were walking home from a party with their friends when a car pulled up beside them and started shooting. The two other friends, Jesse Hernandez and Juan Medina, ran away and thought their friends were right behind them. When they realized they weren't, they went back, and the police arrived on the scene shortly after. They realized that their friends were dead. The events of that fatal evening began unfolding just before midnight, April 9th, 1993, Good Friday. Mondo and Bobby had gone to a party with a group of friends. One of them was Jesse Hernandez, Mondo's childhood best friend. I don't have a bigger brother, but he was close to that. He was always very protective of me. You know, back in high school, I was, I was puny. I was about 120 pounds. And he, he was pretty big, you know. Not fat or chubby. Solid. Solid, yeah. After the party, the boys found themselves without a ride home. Jesse, Mondo, Bobby, and their friend Juan had no choice but to walk through a neighborhood best avoided. We got to one of the streets, and... Uh, a car pulled up. We couldn't see anything in the car. It was it had really dark tinted windows. The car began to creep slowly behind them. And you know where traffic's going, where you're not supposed to stop, it stops. And I was like, why did it stop in the first place? You know, it's not a stop sign there. It's just a flow of traffic. My heart started racing. Then, relief, the car vanished. They just took off real fast. It sped up and, and it just left and out of my sight. And I was like, well, that was a close one. It's just, you know, let's just get out of here. Too late. This was very bad. I turned around and I saw a car. You know, come in, cruise it, post it, and you know, stop, and then turn off the lights. And I knew something was wrong, or something about to go wrong. Someone shouted something in Spanish from the car. And uh, before I know it, I just started hearing gunshots. And it was just, just tot, tot, tot. After that first shot, I just, I booked it. You know, I didn't think of nobody but myself. 
On April 21st, Daniel's cousin, David Rangel, was arrested for the crime. He said his cousin was the real shooter and had bragged about killing the boys with a shotgun. His cousin was 16-year-old Daniel Viejas. He told the detective that Daniel was joking. Daniel was arrested that night. On April 22nd, Daniel was interrogated by Detective Alfonso Marquez. In Texas, police can interrogate minors without their parents present. However, his mom told him not to say anything. He was interrogated for several hours and and reportedly confessed. 16-year-old Daniel Villegas had given El Paso Detective Alfonso Marquez all he needed, a signed confession. It was all carefully typed, as if Daniel had dictated the story himself that he and four friends, two of them called Popeye and Droopy, were out driving in Popeye's white mid-sized car, and they saw Mondo with those three other boys, and they drove by and they yelled at them. Then they turned around, and while they cruised by again, Daniel opened fire from the rear passenger window, killing Bobby instantly. Mondo was wounded, tried to run, but Daniel said they chased him down the street, finished him off. But then, a few hours later, turned over to a social worker, Daniel said it was all a lie. He recanted. Daniel would later say that Detective Marquez had handcuffed him to a chair, harassed, and threatened him. It would be about a year later when the first trial started. It began on December 5, 1994. In the first trial, Daniel's attorneys, Jamie Olivas, called 18 witnesses to the stand, including friends that said Daniel was with them and couldn't have done it. His confession was what got him. The trial was declared as a mistrial as one juror couldn't decide. Daniel was able to go home after being let out on bond. On August 21, 1995, Daniel's second trial began. This time, his family could not afford an attorney, so he was represented by a court-appointed attorney named John Gates, who only called one witness to the stand. The prosecutor was the same for the first two trials, a man named Jamie Esparza who had it out for Daniel. On August 24, 1995, Daniel was found guilty and sentenced to two life terms. Daniel tried eight times to appeal his convictions, and he was turned down each time. His family even wrote to an innocence project, but they said Daniel's case didn't have any DNA to test, so they turned him down, too. It was 2011 when I went to visit him. He'd been locked up for 16 years by then. Well, hello there. The first night in jail, I was just like, why, God, you know, why, why, why? You know, if anybody knows I'm innocent, I mean, it's you. I mean, yeah, I wasn't an angel or nothing, but I was far from a murder, you know? Except, of course, he'd already said on paper that he was. It's a confession. I confessed. Exactly, right? I said, guilty, I did it. Why would you say I did it if you didn't do it? You know, like I said, unless you experience it, you know, you really just can't fully comprehend what really happened? So are you going to make a statement or what? A man named John Mambella started looking into Daniel's case. He was married to Lucy, who had known Daniel since they were little. She even had kids with Daniel's brother. He believed that Daniel was innocent and he wanted to help him. John was just a local contractor and had no experience with law practices, but he hired a private investigator to help him out and Daniel's family. Well, what happened then was a little naive, perhaps. After all, John Mandela was a contractor. He knew nothing about criminal law, but he felt he had to say something. 
they were just so heartbroken. Maybe very sad, you know, to see them that way. And I said, well, you know what? Just let me look into it, you know, and uh, and see what I can do. And we were like, are you kidding? <laughs> of course you can help, you know. Who was this man offering to help? John Mambella was a relentlessly hard worker. He had taken a small family business and turned it into a respected multi-state construction firm. I give a lot of credit to my parents, you know, for the way we were raised. And yeah. uh, you know, they were immigrants from Mexico, you know, and uh, came to the U.S. looking for a better life for themselves and their kids. John Mandela certainly knew his way around contracts and blueprints, but court documents? Still, he had made a promise after all. They also made signs, rented vans with information about Daniel's case, and put up billboards. During the time between trials and appeals, many allegations came out against Detective Marquez. He had told Jesse Hernandez that he thought he was the killer as well as David before finally saying it was Daniel. Jesse had his own story to tell, a story remarkably similar to Daniel's, about his own experience when Marquez questioned him just after the shootings. He said, I want you to write down what happened that night. And I did. I wrote it down and I gave it to him and he says, you know what? You know it, and I know it. This is like that. Is what do you mean? You know, and I know that you did it. And I'm like, excuse me. He's like, yeah. So let's let's keep playing the games. And I'm like, how could you say I did it? You know, I didn't. I didn't do anything. Yes, you did. I said, why would I do that? He says, for a little, you probably wanted his girlfriend. I said, no, that's that's not that's not true. You know, I, you know, these are my friends. I love my friends. I said, well, you know what? You're going to have to explain that to the judge. And they're going to, you know, they're going to fry you. They're going to fry On December 23rd, 2009, Daniel filed a habeas corpus appeal. It said that he was hoping for a reversal to get a new trial because of ineffective counsel. John Gates, Daniel's attorney in the second trial, said he only had 60 days to prepare and that it was unfair. From June 21st to October 21st, 2011, there were many hearings to hear both sides of the case to determine if Daniel should get another trial. Jesse Hernandez testified that Daniel's statement did not match what Daniel had confessed to. The statement that you saw, did it match the events that happened to you and your friends? No. A lot of people would say, how could you, how could you do that? How could you just turn around and... and, and see that this murderer is innocent. How could you just do a thing like that? That's like, because he's not a murderer. Detective Marquez was also a witness, and let's just say it got heated. Alfonso Marquez was retired, hadn't been a cop for years. But now here he was in court, defending the confession he'd taken from Daniel Villegas back in 1993. And Daniel? after 16 years in prison, was taking his last and only shot at getting a new trial. The stakes could not have been higher, as Alfonso Marquez sparred with defense attorney Joe Spencer. Do you remember this case of the killing of Robert England and Armando Lasso? Only what I read in my transcripts. Only what you read in the transcripts. A lot of things he said he didn't remember. That's right. There was a lot of I don't remember that specifics and unfortunately it was always to the convenience of, of law enforcement don't remember sir i don't recall 
Did you verify that? I don't remember, sir. I don't know, sir. All right, well, let me help you refresh your memory right. again. You're throwing it at me. I don't know what you want me to look at. Oh, I'm you. sorry, Mike. I don't want yeah. to mean to intimidate you. Okay. Yeah, I'm not intimidated by yeah. you at all. We were taught in law school that we cannot get too personal with these cases. We have to be professionals. What'd you say? You don't intimidate me at all. On December 23rd, 2013, Daniel's case was overturned due to ineffective counsel. He was not acquitted, but was able to leave jail for the first time in 18 years to wait for his new trial. During the time he was out, he also got married to a woman named Amanda and had kids. He was also able to get a job working for John at his contracting business. The DA wouldn't drop the case, but he did give Daniel a deal before his trial to take an Alford plea and remain free and stay a convicted killer or to continue with the new trial. Daniel and his wife discussed it, and Daniel said he wanted to clear his name. On October 1, 2018, his new trial began. This trial had quite a few interesting people who were called as a witness. There was Jesse, a friend of the two victims, David, Daniel's cousin. He confessed that Detective Marquez was trying to put the blame on him before he said it was Daniel. This time the state calls David Rundhelm. Back in April of 1993, did you tell the El Paso Police Department that the defendant told you that he committed the shooting? Yes. You testified again. Same, same, or different? Different. He told me that he, uh, in front of them, and approached him and shot him with a shotgun. David had testified before, but this time did feel quite different. I felt this strength this time. I'm a 42-year-old man who's accomplished now. I'm no longer teenager who can be bullied. And when Joe Spencer cross-examined David, he finally told the full story of his own experience with Detective Marquez. Essentially, Marquez said if I didn't do the things he asked, he was going to charge me with a crime. At this trial, Daniel's confession was also thrown out. Daniel was found not guilty. He collapsed and wept when the verdict was read. Daniel never held a grudge over David saying it was him and they are still very close today. Also to this day, Jamie Esparza still believes Daniel was the killer. He sat down for an interview with the King, Keith Morrison, and it got a little saucy. 
The DA waited too. A lot riding on this. For nearly a decade, I'd been asking Jaime Esparza to sit down and talk, explain his thinking, why he was determined to convict Daniel again. He had always declined the invitation. Until now, after it all went down. Well, again, thank you for doing this and for talking to us. After all the water under the bridge in this case, years and years of back and forth, are you still glad you did it? Oh, absolutely. I believe Mr. Vegas is the murderer, and the reality is, is the evidence points directly to Mr. Vegas. The confession is really important in the case. Well, the confession was thrown out. Right. The confession was thrown out because it wasn't a real confession. No, that's not true. Well, that's what the court determined. The DA said he is still sure Daniel's confession was voluntary. And you believe Marquez did the job correctly? I do. He said Marquez couldn't have been alone with Daniel long enough to coerce him, not without anyone else at the police station noticing. All of those detectives, not just Detective Marquez, would have to be in cahoots. And I know all of them personally. I know them very well. And the discrepancies in the confession certainly didn't dissuade him. Isn't it your job to say, facts don't quite match that confession. We better not bring this to trial until we look into it a little more carefully. Yeah, you clearly don't do what I do for a living. I have a lot of cases. I'm kind of, I, I'm a little shocked that you would make that decision. Well, well, okay, but you don't do what I do for a living. At the end of the day, two men, Bobby England and Armando Lazo, were killed, and the real killers may be still out there. The only other person that was ever a suspect in this case was a local gang member named Rudy Flores. He refused to testify at Daniel's last trial and is currently in jail for other crimes. My book recommendation for this week is If I Disappear by Eliza Jane Brazer. Summary, Sarah loves true crime podcasts. They make her feel empowered in a world where women just like her disappear daily. She's sure they are preparing her for something. So when Rachel, her favorite podcast host, goes missing, Sarah knows it's time to act. Rachel has always taught her to trust her instincts. Sarah follows the clues in the episodes to an isolated ranch outside Rachel's small hometown to begin her search. She's convinced her investigation will make Rachel so proud, but the more Sarah digs into this unfamiliar world, the more off things start to feel, because Rachel's not the first woman to vanish from the ranch, and she won't be the last. I like this book, but it did start off a little slow for me. It also made me think of this true crime community because there are really a lot of true crime podcasters and fans out there that are wanting to do a lot of good in the world to find out what happened to people. I definitely recommend this book, and I give it an 8 out of 10. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe to my blog. The link is in the show notes. Please rate and review my podcast if you're enjoying it, and follow me on Instagram at It's Crime O'Clock Somewhere Blog Pod. Other sources for today's episodes are Fox News, KTSM.com, and LongCrime.com. Again, all other sources are in today's show notes. And remember, it's crime o'clock somewhere. See you next week.